After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Everyone, welcome again to Mind Rolling. Raghu is here. I am back with Acharya Shunya, who is somebody that we've only met once, but welcome to the show, to the podcast. Thank you, Raghu. So, just to let you know, first of all, there's a, uh, Acharya put together a wonderful uh, book, and... uh, and the thing that excites me most, or that I picked up uh, when I got the book, was the reality of, um, well, first of all, India, which is so important to me. I've been going there regularly for a long, long, long time, many decades. And it is where I met my guru, Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba. So very, very, very fortunate. And... Uh, so India is so full of many, many, many different teachings, many gods and goddesses. There is practically nobody that can say, wow, I didn't find something for me that turned me on in terms of the spiritual path. And uh, one of the paths that uh, is uh, so very uh, potentially profitable for people to enter into is, of course, Advaita or non-duality. And, but at the same time, what I really love uh, here in, in terms of what you've done is set up a real opportunity for people to apply these ancient, this ancient wisdom into practical day-to-day, which is all about what mind-rolling is about. It's what I've been doing for years on podcasts, is getting with people and saying, okay, you, we have this knowledge, now it's a matter of how to disseminate it in a way that is practical and people can apply it into where we are and where we're coming from uh, now. And it's not just something to read about in a book. So um, that this book is full of uh, all sorts of different, uh, shall we say, uh, Wisdom practicalities is what I would call it, and uh, but before we go there, we we have to. Uh, Acharya Shunya comes everybody from um, a, a very uh, specific lineage, spiritual lineage from India, and um, this is something that you've been 
part of your entire life. And so we, we need to hear a little bit about from you, if you don't mind sharing just a little bit of your life story right, and how you were in this family, what this family and tradition represents and your place in it. Can you? All the way back to when you were a child. Ragu, we are from Ayodhya. And I believe you've been there. Yes, I have. So I grew up pretty close to the Hanuman Temple, the Hanuman Gadi. We lived in the neighborhood not too far. And um, every morning I would visit the river Sarayu. Not every morning, but several mornings, where my grandfather, my baba, my guru would offer the sandhya or the prayers to the rising sun. And as I was growing up, it felt like a very routine life at that time. I, my cousins, a few disciples of Baba, we would all go. And I and a couple of girls would play and girls and boys would play and, you know, dive into the river. We were like fish. Hmm. But gradually we were called into offering prayers because when Baba, my guru, would go into meditative silence, we knew it's time to pray. And initially it was all just muttering and mumbling the Gayatri. But gradually that mantra descended into my being. I went through a fire ceremony at age nine. It was introduced into my ear traditionally. And ever since then we have been... Um, I have been studying, and then at a certain age, at age 24, I was told that I could now begin teaching, although I didn't really take on my first spiritual student until age 40. <laughs> because in our tradition, even though you are ready, you have done what is known as, um, you, there are three steps of learning. You've done Shavanam, so you've completed the listening the listening of the Veda, mm. Shravanam. But you are still doing Mananam, the contemplation. And the third stage of practice and teaching and dissemination follows thereafter, known as Nididhyasanam. And I had asked my guru, when will I know I'm ready? And he said, you will know without doubt. And ever since I started teaching, I never stopped, never questioned, never doubted. Uh, whether I'm ready or not, and it felt like uh, coming off, um, coming into maturation with or the ripening of that knowledge, and the book you are talking about, Sovereign Self, pretty much that that has just flown from my being effortlessly. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I feel delighted that you visited my hometown. Most people are like, "Where Ayodhya? What?" <laughs> Because it's such a tiny town and it's not exactly Delhi, Agra, Calcutta kind of circuit Mumbai, when people go yeah. to India. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we should say what the reference is, what Ayodhya really, the powerful representation that it is, when from the Ramayan, when Ram was banished from uh, his uh, father's kingdom and his wife and his brother Lakshman went to the forest in Chitrakut and but was not the kingdom in Ayodhya? Yes. 
That's Ram it. was yeah. from Ayodhya. Yeah. Yes. And Ram for everybody, Ram is incarnation of Vishnu as is Krishna. And uh, in our tradition, that was extremely important as Hanuman was everywhere, wherever Neem Karoli Baba was, Hanuman was. So that's why we went and visited Ayodhya. That Hanuman has been, it's very ancient, is it not, that Murti? Very ancient. It's very ancient. And mm. in fact, this town itself, Ayodhya, is mentioned in the Rig Veda, the oldest text coming huh. out of India. And, and in fact, the body itself is called Ayodhya. So oh, really? in which dwells Ram, the spirit. And I think for a tradition that is devoted to Hanumana, Ayodhya is a very important place, I would agree. Mm. Yeah. And that temple, Hanuman Gadi, that you're talking about, it's one of the main landmarks of my city. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you know that we have, uh, the Ramdas and Siddhima and others put together a beautiful murti of Hanuman flying with the mountain? And it is in New Mexico, Taos, New Mexico now. And we just built an absolutely beautiful temple or the trust put together uh, that was inaugurated. And Ramdas went literally four or five months before he passed. He made the, And he had not left Maui in a long, long, long time. And he went specifically for the installation of the Murti in uh, this, this beautiful temple in Taos. So if you ever get a chance... I Please. will. Yeah, do visit. It's a. I watched the documentary on Netflix of Ram Das's last days and his reflections and um, his his stillness. His mm. inner stillness was very obvious. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, are, well, is, was there any time though you're growing up within this very prominent tradition that you? rebelled at all? I mean, we think of that in America. We rebelled about everything all the time and we don't have the tradition uh, that you have in India. What was that like for you? You want to go out, you know, I mean, you started to really get um, into a lot of studies, not to mention your regular school studies. Yeah. So the studies were not, too difficult in the sense that they were very early morning prior to my going to school and then they would be satsang in the evening but it became more and more more and more intense especially probably Baba my guru his name was um, Baba Yudhyanath he um, had chosen me so there was some focus upon me And definitely around 13 or 14, I felt like we were the strangest family (laughs) alive in India. Why? And uh, India was changing. I was born in the 1960s. This was the mid-1970s. Though Ayutthaya itself, I don't know when you went there last, but even now we don't have a single movie theater there. <laughs> yeah, we no. don't have a mall. So it's still very simple. 
So it was not like in 1970s, everything around me was very modernized, urbanized. It was still a sleepy town and we were an illustrious and important family. But I was also going to regular school and I was reading and I was learning. And so I would find a very traditional way of life back home. And, um, and I wondered when we would catch up or, you know, and I particularly resisted what I had done all my life, which was waking up early. And for a while there, I didn't want to wake up early. And I write about it in another book of mine, Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom. And for a while there, I would wake up at like 7.30, which is very different from waking up at dawn. <laughs> that was like late. Yeah. But the fun part was nobody scolded me and nobody um, shamed me. Everybody just went about their business. And after a while, it was just boring to stay in bed when like stuff was happening around you. So I went through my own rebellion. I went through my question marks, but I'll tell you something. Um, it was the routines that I resisted more than the spiritual teachings. Mm. I, I remember being pretty young and listening about death and how death is like really just changing clothes. And so I would be like I'd open my little mouth and listen to Baba when he would teach or when he would be teaching his students, I would be in the back when I was not his uh, regular student. And I would just be sitting with my head on my mother's lap listening and I would be curious and I would listen to some words and ask him the meaning of it afterwards. So we say in India that your propensity or your prakriti or your sahaja nature, your inherent propensities come out. And, and as Lord Krishna has said in the Gita, that if we are, some of us, if we are yoga brashtas, we have fallen off our path in some lifetime. We were sincere, we either fell off or we met death prematurely or something the Lord is kind to us and we might find ourselves born in the teacher's family or near the teacher's family. Mm. Somehow, somehow we'll find our way quickly rather than late. And so I feel like I was um, completing some unfinished business when I would, um, I didn't talk like this earlier, but now in my 50s, in hindsight, now I realize why I actually enjoyed learning ancient Shankaracharya commentaries when some friends of mine were watching black and white television, all of them collected together to watch one television set in India in some house while I would be sitting with my grandfather. Mm. And I didn't know always how to connect the worlds. And I was awkward with it. We are also householder tradition. So we, you know, we, we, we take on a marriage partner, we have children, we go through life and we go through ashramavastha, we go through stages of life, we complete our dharmas, we, and yet we try to find the four goals of life, artha, dharma, kama, moksha, you know, that whole spectrum of going from survival, pleasure, dharma and liberation but within the scope of family life. So it's been an interesting journey all in all. And rebellion is one way to describe it. 
But then, so part of this family, as you said, they were householder families. Interesting, because that's our tradition as well. Everybody uh, is devotees of Neem Karoli Baba. They were all family people. Sadhus did come, and but he didn't take any disciples or anything. He, that tra- that was not part of the tradition. So I understand it quite well. And uh, but then at some point, your parents arranged your marriage. Yep. Must be. Yes. That's just how it goes in our traditional families. And um, I was all gung ho of making it the marriage of my lifetime. And this is where 21st century or 20th century meets tradition. And I found that um, despite all the parameters being checked, this was not a comfortable equation for me. And it was done through uh, astrology, right? Vedic astrology? Some of that, I'm not exactly sure what were the procedures followed because that was not what we girls did, like ask why this person mm-hmm. was chosen. Yeah. yeah. But, and a very respectable and a very good family. But then, um, see, this is where I'm a different teacher for the 21st century. This is where I changed the tradition. This is where I had to look into the Vedas and see not only what the male seers were saying, but what were the female seers who have also written the Vedas saying, where I found that, uh, where I had to reinterpret the goddess mythology also. And I had to say that, oh, Durga is the first, um, you know, woman who has broken all stereotypes. And Lakshmi was not just one domesticated goddess, you know, she is an out-of-the-box goddess. A what goddess? Lakshmi, too, is an out-of-the-box goddess. Oh, out-of-the-box, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, she's not just a domesticated goddess. So, you know, we see so many forms of Lakshmi. So then I, you know, took on a new, I I exited that marriage using Mm. all my Vedic knowledge with dharma, with peace, with harmony, speaking my truth. And that's where it took me time to bring this truth into my life, Raghu. Because if I followed the script, then I should just stay in the marriage hmm. and, um, and, and, and hold a satsang where I would just be allowed to have a satsang in India just because I come from this bad family. But instead, I was like, can I really have a satsang when I'm not experiencing the satsang or association with the highest truth within me. And that is where I had a whole decade from my 30s, or rather almost a decade and a half of going through life, churning it, coming to clarity, and then realizing that my tradition is asking me to lead the boldest version of my life possible from inner peace, from dharma, and from authenticity. And that the Vedas or the non-dual wisdom doesn't just teach oneness, oneness, oneness. It teaches through the battle of Kurukshetra in the Mahabharata, looking at an asuric or an evil being and, and saying that's not acceptable. Where I found that every teaching possible 
from saying no to toxic relationships, to creating the life that you were meant to lead, to living the life that you were meant to lead, to finding your purpose, and to being the boldest goddess version of yourself is exactly the teachings. And and I, when I go back to my own family, um, I did not receive dogma there. I just received pure teaching. But then my life situations happened where I had to even go beyond the pure teachings into reinterpreting them for the 21st century. Mm. And that is when I came into my own as a teacher because I don't know, Raghu, but as a person, I'm not just able to repeat something. I'm not a memorizing teacher. Yes, I know a couple of several hundred shlokas and verses and hymns and stotrams. And, you know, and I, and I can sing from morning to night and wow the audience. But that's not my interest to just repeat the text. Mm-hmm. My interest in saying, how does the story of Ramayana, Mahabharata, the Puranas, the stories of the goddesses, the legions of Saraswati, Durga, Kali, how do I use them in my, in my life today? Um, while being a, a guru to thousands worldwide. And I guess these are the teachings then that came out in Sovereign Self, which are making them so, mm. which is making this book so appealable to people yeah. worldwide. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. And I've dared to do something different, but if you were to read every line of it, it's still tethered in dharma. Yeah. Tethered in dharma because dharma accommodates not good or bad, but right action. And sometimes that right action with me as Hanumana did, he went in peace to Lanka, but when they didn't listen to him, he set his own, when they set his tail on fire, mm-hmm. he, 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 reduced, um, he reduced Lanka to ashes, mm-hmm. but he had gone as a peace ambassador. Yeah. So our gods have been teaching us right action, not to be just, um, you know, too holy for ourselves, or you know, what is it called? Self-serious is a, another yeah. Word. yeah, yeah. You know, I I must say to everybody because you said how this marriage you exited the marriage that was arranged for you, and so all the listeners, this th- has this has no effect whatsoever to them in in any way because in a in the West. And you live here as well, so you you really have your foot in both uh, uh, traditions. But here, people exit marriages on a regular basis. This is not news to anybody. You say that, oh, yeah, okay. But in India, and maybe not everybody knows this, this is something that is extraordinary, extraordinary. I had... For instance, I had a mentor who was very close to Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, uh, named K.C. Tuari, and he was wide open. He and he was a, a, a the uh, headmaster of a boarding school up in the Himalayas, and yet he was uh, an incredible, accomplished yogi, devotee of Mother and Shiva, and he he used to say, I am wide open to everything. But you people in the West, the way that you easily just 
get divorced and so on, this even for me is difficult to chew on. So I can all, I can't imagine the um, what this happening was like for you uh, when you made that decision and your family knew about it. So this was this was a big deal. I can only imagine, right? Yeah. Going no, through. thank you for contextualizing it um, because uh, then it became a landmark moment for me to choose my truth and also the pretentiousness around holiness. Mm. Like if you're holy, you got it together, including your marriage, including your sexuality, including your angst. You just and you just put a lid on it. And I've met so many householder couples who are into the holy business, but <laughs> their life is not at all holy. <laughs> I, on the other hand, chose uh, and you know to choose my wholeness over holiness. And I did this while I was in India. So it's not like I came to America, yeah. learned of some new ideas, borrowed some power from the Westerners, and then decided to do what I wanted to do. So by the time I um, took on a new partner, who, by the way, teaches alongside me because he's an Ayurveda chef, oh. along with doing his other stuff in the world, uh, he also teaches cuisine and we have our own life and it's we were meant to do the work together and and so from that perspective and I want to come back to the non-duality when I look at the partner I left behind and from a non-dual perspective if we both share different bodies minds opinions but share the same self then I even bow to the person I left behind it's not like somebody hurt me or or, 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 you know, I feel like this is a play and I'm playing a role and, and different parts of me are coming as the, the ex or the present or the student coming and going and life is just happening. And that sense of uh, unity consciousness allows me a sense of shantam bhava, inner peace that all is well, and I'm just meeting me in different body suits mm. of different shades of darkness and light. And I'm using them to find me, and my books reflect that, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Hey, since we're on this relationship uh, subject, and I know towards more towards the end of the book, Atma Shakti, bringing soul power to relationships, um, here's your... Uh, just a little quote I'll read from the Mahabharata. Never do that to another which you regard as injurious to your own self. This, in brief, is the rule of dharma. Yielding to impulse and acting from ego, one becomes guilty of a dharma. So very straightforward. Uh, and you, um, you tell that story of, of, of the snake. I love that story because it says so much. You remember? Yes, I do. Tell it. Don't remember the chapter number, but we were talking about, um, you know, ahimsa as a dharma. and um, Non-killing. Yeah, non-violence and non-killing, non-hurting. And it's, it's a really great dharma, but sometimes we have to understand the subtleties of the context in which it should be employed. 
So there was a snake and uh, he lived uh, near a tree and he had quite a reputation. You know, he would just bite at all the children who would play around the tree and anybody he could find. He was a bit sensitive and he was a biter. And uh, his bite was, of course, poisonous. So it was a bit of a nuisance. But as it happens in India, people like my Baba go from village to village and give satsangs or sermons. And so uh, some Sadhu Baba had come, some Rishi, some sage-like person. And he gave a sermon on Ahimsa Paramodharma. Ahimsa is the greatest dharma on nonviolence. And he spoke so beautifully that the snake whose soul was really getting ready to evolve, was like, gosh, that's so amazing. And he said, look at me, I'm hurting everybody, even those little kids who come playing. So he decided he will stop biting. A couple of months passed and monsoon passed and then the Sadhu Baba came again because they go round and round different villages. And this time he saw the snake and the snake looked really battered and you know, as if something had um, worn him out. He looked weak. He looked half dead. And so the sadhu said, what happened to you? What happened? Last time I met you, you looked so gorgeous. Your skin was shining. Your hood was up. And the snake said, well, I heard your sermon last time. And so I just quit biting others. And so the Baba looked at him and said, Okay, so I asked, I probably suggested stop biting, but why did you stop hissing? <laughs> and true. this was a teaching on having boundaries. And you don't want to become so, you don't want to become nonviolent in such an indiscriminate fashion that you become a pushover. And you become the victim of uh, other people's lack of dharma. So dharma includes self-protection. Dharma includes using judicious uh, violence even if necessary, such as you might need to use police force or army or whatever, the surgeon needs to use a knife to do some good. And so this kind of uh, balanced teaching is the hallmark of the Vedas or the deeper Hindu teachings where they don't just say one thing is always right. In fact, they even say like compassion, the best possible dharma, but watch it. If you have compassion for toxic people, not a good idea. That yeah. is called moha, wrong thing to do. Yeah, moha. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't, this just reminds me of when you just said this, uh, there was a Tibetan teacher named Trungpa, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche that we knew back in the day. Uh, he was a, also a fabulous interpreter of uh, Buddhist concepts, Tibetan Buddhist concepts into practicality. He's one of those people. And he, he wrote a whole thing around the concept of idiot compassion, he used to call it, right? Which, moha compassion, same thing, you know. Yes. And we tend to do that. Uh, we are... Uh, at, at times ill-suited to do right action because uh, our view is clouded, just completely obscuration. Um, so, yeah, but in, in terms of applying this, this particular story and this concept, uh, 
apply it to a relation. I mean, because everybody, I mean, this isn't just relations of, of a couple, relations between parents and children, siblings, people you work with, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think it applies across the board. And you have this, a happy ending is not always possible, but dharma is always possible. Maybe uh, uh, just um, explicate that just a little bit. When happy endings, when we're looking for happy endings, we are often compromising to have that happy ending. Mm. And that happy ending could be based on a fantasy, on conditioning, on some script that we are running. For example, if my happy ending was that once you get married in an arranged marriage, you stay married forever, you know, come rain, come hail, come sunshine, you know, and that's happy ending. But for me, dharma was standing up for against patriarchy, <laughs> standing up against um, being um, boxed into roles mm. where my freedom to be who I am was being questioned. And um, so dharma in my, for example, situation was was walking out that door, no matter what the consequence. And countless students of mine, it's not just in India. I came to America and I now have nine out of 10 of my students are not Indians. Yeah. And I meet men and women who are ready for sentimental reasons and the idiot's compassion is flowing through them for the wrong person, for the wrong reason, out of sheer habit or conditioning or guilt. Mm. We are often making decisions based on our gut feeling, but when dharma comes into the picture, we don't just want to earn, uh, you know, we don't just want to uh, be good at any cost. Mm. We may even be bad, but we know that dharma is with us, ethics is with us. Morality is with us. Truth is with us. And in that moment, it may appear like we are acting in a manner that is not appreciated by society or the other or our friends. But your inner conscience knows you're right, especially if you're aligned on the right side of the dharma. So sometimes, for example, if I have to talk to a student and show them the mirror, I could be a popular teacher and just say, how lovely, how wonderful. I bless you. Because that's what they expect of their teacher. Instead, I say to them, what are you doing? Am I just a fantasy in your life? Is this spiritual work? Why are you here? What are you avoiding in your life? Do you actually need to go shopping instead of studying Bhagavad Gita? If, if that's your truth, do that. Rather than you know, how we bypass and pretend to our own selves that we are ready for salvation or liberation or self-actualization when actually we have big holes in our being that we could not fill. So when such a person comes and I tell them the truth or I show them that they are not ready, it makes me unpopular in the moment. But if I was that person, would I speak truth to myself? I would. So dharma is always possible. 
a happy ending or a happy note is not always possible. Of course, with Ahimsa guiding us, we can make our speech pleasant, non-hurtful, but but still we must deliver the truth. Mm, and the very truth difficult. is the truth is a carrier of dharma. Mm, yeah. Very difficult. One must, I think you'll agree, know oneself very well to be able to connect with the truth and see the motivations that we have of self-interest that are so powerful, desire, clinging, all of it. So. And the study of the Vedic text, what we call Shastra, helps because it teaches dharma the dharma of arjavam or straightforwardness, the dharma of amanitvam or non-pretentiousness, the dharma of uh, non-violence, ahimsa, the dharma of kshanti, accommodation of others, the dharma of shanti, peacefulness. So once when we study these teachings over years and years, and so I studied about this dharma called straightforwardness, like an arrow. I was just going to go back to you and say, talk about that. That is talk something I that. have never heard about. What's well, the Hindi for it or Sanskrit? Right. Arjivam is Sanskrit for straight, to be straight like an arrow. Oh. And it asks us, this is from the Bhagavad Gita, and it asks us that whenever we speak, we should pause. And we should make sure our speech is aligned with what we are thinking. So there's no deception. But then it says, and I love this. It says, make sure what you're thinking is aligned with what you're feeling. Mm. So this is like the ultimate for emotional health and preventing self-deception and, uh, you know, misaligning with our own being. Mm. And when you become straight like an arrow, then you speak your truth. And somehow Indian spirituality became all about ahimsa and daya, kindness. But some of these direct ones, like, hey, are you straightforward or not? These ones didn't get talked about as much. And I like to bring them up because as a householder, I feel like we also need these dharma values to guide us. And so sometimes, for example, if I find it's difficult to bring up a topic yeah, this arjavam or this arrow-like dharma keeps keeps hurting me till I can align it up and utter it. <laughs> then I feel better, Raghu. Mm-hmm. And that's why in my book, Sovereign Self, I have a whole chapter on 20 dharma values that I have picked up from different spiritual texts for a householder. Mm. Uh, so that we can, besides the yama niyamas of Patanjali or, um, uh, you know, can we also have some more yamas and niyamas that help ordinary folks? Yeah, right. Uh, there, in this uh, chapter around relationships and so on, uh, there's a word that you use that, I have found it very difficult. I was uh, um, another mentor of ours named K.K. Shah, actually. He used to come to the retreats from India. He was very, uh, Ramdas is like uh, Indian brother. It's the first translator with Neem Karoli Baba and so on. 
And one of the concepts that he would constantly talk about, but it was very difficult to, for people to understand it, is Mariada. And he, he would, the example he used from the Ramayana was, uh, I mean, I remember one story where Ram is with his brother Lakshman and they're going to save Sita with the army and, and they're going to Sri Lanka. And one of the uh, rascal, shall we say, deities maybe in the ocean, I can't remember which one, wouldn't comply with Ram's request to help get over to Sri Lanka. And Lakshman, his brother, looked at him and went, what? Oh, just, you just kill him. You can do anything. Turn him into a, a, a snail, whatever. You're God incarnate. You can do, and, and Ram said, no, no. This is not proper conduct. That is the way I have understood Mariada. So I'd love for you to give uh, an interpretation around that because it's a very powerful term, and especially in, in this particular tradition in the Ramayana. I mean, in India, at, you know, yes. no matter what. Um, yes, and interestingly, in the sovereign self, I have spoken about Mariada. It is such a core context of behavior. Yeah. Um, and if I would say that if there is something lacking in the 21st century, the irreverence that we see worldwide, it comes cynicism. from a loss of mariada, yeah, the, the mockery, the cynicism. And so mariada is what the way my teacher had explained it was like how the river, when it is flowing within its own channel, she is called a goddess. She is Devi. But when that river grows outside her channel, then she becomes a killer because now she has become a flood. She has become, um, you know, Nivriti or Kali. She has become, she's out to punish you. So just like that, when we all have channels through which we flow, through which the cosmos wants us to flow. There is the concept of what is being asked of you, Swadharma. What is, what is your duty? What is your responsibility? What are those indulges or luxuries that you can get away with? And what is it that you cannot neglect? Like a mother who is tending to an infant, her mariada is that she can do anything, but she cannot neglect that infant. Uh, or I'm a spiritual teacher. I'm also a mother, a sister, a daughter, a daughter-in-law. But I'm prima facie, I'm a spiritual teacher. I'm a guru. Whether I'm alone or whether I'm in the public, I cannot forget this mariada that I am a teacher and people look up to me. I am their role model. When that mariada is remembered by me, I will, even when I'm alone, know my limits know my do's and don'ts, know what is possible and what is not possible. Lord Rama is known as Mariada Purushottamama yeah. because yeah. he was the ultimate teacher of Mariada because though he was the supreme reality, he had come in the contained Mariada of being a human being, albeit a prince, 
but the one who was not even uh, in charge of his own kingdom. He had been banished for whatever reasons to a forest, to foreign fair reasons or whatever. It was his leela. But so he knew what were his tools. So he didn't like, for example, run to uh, Ayodhya to get his dad's army to save his wife from Lanka. He didn't use any of the resources that had been taken away from him. So even in his princely role, he knew his mariada. Then he knew his mariada that he was not going to suddenly um, flout cosmic laws and cosmic do's and don'ts. He stayed within his human limits mm. and was an ideal of what action to take. I've grown up with Rama's myth. You know, growing up in Ayodhya, our deity is Rama, Sita, Lakshmana, Hanumana, because we have grown up in um, Ram Lala's home in Ayodhya. So for us, um, every night when Baba would give satsang on, um, on all of these divine beings from the Ramayana, what we really learned was Mariada. I mean, Hanuman is Lord Shiva himself. But when Hanumana comes in the form of that bhakti mood and sits there and says, you know, I am your servant, and he says that to, when he says, I am your servant to Lord Rama, it's like he's, he's equal or he's the same because Vishnu and Shiva are one in the non-dual teaching. But they're all in their mariadas. Sita is uh, Shakti. She's not afraid of Ravana. In fact, one blade of grass that she held and <laughs> Ravana couldn't come close. But she remained in the mariada of being the wife. That doesn't mean, and mariada doesn't mean be less, but mariada means be cognizant that we are all playing roles cosmic roles. We also have cosmic duties. We also have cosmic um, uh, gifts that we have to unpack within us. But it should all be done with mariada. And today uh, everybody is usurping each other's mariada. <laughs> and, uh, so. and that's the world we live in nowadays. Yeah. An example of that is usurping each other's mariada. Absolutely. For example, I know that um, students, for example, somebody like me has studied formally for 14 years, informally for 40, formally for 14 years, and informally, like on my own, Swadhyaya self-study for 40 years. But there will be students who will do a short course and declare themselves spiritual teachers. It's, it's a common example. Mm -hmm. they, will be, um, they will be people who have uh, walked through the political circle. They have served at a city level, county level, state level. They have built their way through service, through, through policy making, through, through being involved. And then there are some just on their popularity ticket or their money. Uh, or their clout suddenly want to leap across and become our leaders. I don't want to take names. So the point here is that this is no longer the rule of dharma. 
that's why in rama rajya or when when there is the rule of dharma and everybody is in their maryada it is known as the kingdom of rama but we are not there anymore mm-hmm. and now satyuga no satyuga people play mm-hmm. all kinds of roles they pretend if you do if um, fake it and let until you make it <laughs> doggy dog world everybody you know how to get you know it's whatever you can grab and clutch and hide and hoard mm. that's yours to claim and pretend and a feather in your cap <laughs> so the old, but these are not old values maryada maryada still supports you for example i've been in this country now for 20 years mm. and um um i have an organization that is uh, free of scandal pure clean and i go yeah where is that coming from not luck not good luck from the cognizance that you better stay in your maryada shunya then the next person will stay in their maryada then the next person will stay in their maryada it's when the spiritual teachers themselves are spilling everywhere that there is all kinds of leaky energy and then what we have is a loss of maryada and concurrent with that is the loss of dharma hmm. yeah well you just explained out mostly what's going on for the, in the west or in america in particular uh very difficult times all around uh there's a, let me read something from the book that i love and everybody out there you know if you're talking about Gee, what are the th- thing what how to make this really practical for me uh let's identify something first which uh, Shunya uh, beautifully identifies in the book um this is just there's so much unfortunately that we are dealing with and here in here you are talking about egoic personal uh persona acting out lying stealing cheating manipulating all of the things and we often lie to ensure our essential security we break others down by gossiping to feel a sense of our own internal perfection we overeat to feel the satisfaction of our inner fullness we cheat and manipulate to grab power from others to experience our own quote unquote not quote uh, in parentheses inherent spiritual power we cheat and betray within our sexual relationships to feel greater moments of inner joy we kill others to not only get someone out of the way of our own happiness but to experience a sense of our own power or sense of immortality in this way even our wrongdoing points to the truth of who we really are the first role of the ego is to associate with experiences and spin a quote unquote i and quote unquote mine narrative in second its second role however is is to act as the portal to infinite happiness and knowledge this must be accomplished by effort reflection and discrimination aided by wisdom of the vedas our journey of awakening to ourselves depends on how we reconcile our ego with ourself and bringing the ego into greater alignment through sacred instruction that kind of is the core of what we are all going through 
right? And, and basically what this whole book is centered around is, uh, is exactly that. And how do we bring this together? The, the ego is a terrible master but a great servant if your perspective switches over. And uh, uh, yeah, just talk about that for a minute because I yeah. think that's really uh, the core of, of what we're dealing with. And, and some of these... Uh, some of the um, metaphors you talk about right here, everybody can go, whoops, yep, yep, manipulation, yep, you know, lying, right? All, I mean, overeating, I mean, everything we do to move into our comfort zone, which we have had as a habitual pattern our entire life and have not dealt with and are happily, especially if you're on the spiritual path, happy to do a little bit of bypassing in order to stave off dealing with going through the transformation necessary. So ego is no longer the Lord and master and is the servant. Well, you know, I, I wrote these lines because there's a basic premise of the Vedas, which I, which makes me a fan of the Vedas. I love how kind they are when they observe and when I say the Vedas, I mean the entire gamut, Bhagavad Gita, Ramayana, Puranas, uh, Upanishads, all of them have this basic observation to make that nobody is evil. Nobody is evil. They're only a little bit lost. Hmm. Ignorance. They have avidya. They have ignorance because if they knew better, they wouldn't be that. Now, this was just something I'd heard repeated again and again and again, that it is avidya or maya, which, you know, confuses us. And we start building little islands of the ego and me and mine. And we get lost in these tiny little battles and we forget that we're all one. And this is like a core teaching of the Upanishads. But then when I brought it into my life, when I started working with people, I started counseling them as a teacher. I'm not a trained counselor, but any spiritual teacher often counsels lost souls. I found people, I found that I was turning across people who had in their own minds done great crime. They had hurt mm. people or they had hurt themselves or they had, I remember meeting this one person who had even peddled drugs and become really rich in San Francisco because of that. But now they had pangs of guilt and self-hatred. And in every case, I found that ultimately it was an awkward and stupid attempt of the ego to return to its own bigness. But it was trying to do it in a very material and, um, if I may say so, uh, ultimately not a very smart way. Like, for example, like when the ego tries to make a point. Well, we often do that, but often the one who's already aware of their power need not make a point. They'll just live that point. So when I wrote these words, I was talking about how in silly little ways, because the ego has forgotten that it is not a poor little orphan, and it belongs to the self, which is one with God. It has forgotten that it already has all the thunder and power and grace of divine mother and divine father with it. It is not 
this 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 thing that settles for crumbs or seduces and manipulates and begs and puts on a farce and an act uh, to get those to get little crumbs and and so when i analyzed the the awkward misaligned non-adaptive behaviors Ultimately, from the eyes of knowledge and compassion, you realize it was nothing but we humans trying to touch something eternal within us, <laughs> but instead we come away with acidity and burping. <laughs> we don't really touch atma, the self, we touch something very ugly. And then we think that's it, that's who we are. And then we try to like cover it up and go into some hypocritical space, which is which causes psychosomatic illness, or we live with it and we hate ourselves. And neither position is needed. Neither we need to ignore it and pretend something else, nor we need to hate ourselves. We need to say, oh, it's just my ego. It needs education. It needs to come back in proximity with self and God, which is really one in the non-dual tradition. And um, and so if you catch God, you will come close to self. If you catch self, you will come close to God. So it's either way that divine reality. Uh, ego is only a little imagined separation. And in that imagination, we have come away very far. And we are suffering. And we're hating ourselves and loathing ourselves. Or we're hurting others. But if we relax all of this, then we can have radical self-acceptance. And you're very right. This is the core of the spiritual journey, is our egos has a twin role to play. First, it plays the role of making us lost in the existential fog called Maya. And we try to catch our own tail, and we never do. Through money, through sex, through achievements, through fame, through name. And then the second part of the role is when we question, why am I trying to catch the tail? And in a content space, we realize that we are complete and we don't have to do any such maneuvers. And life becomes simple, sacred, whole, and sovereign, in my words, where you have, where you're not doing things compulsively. Sovereign has, you have authority over what you're doing. You know why you're doing it. You have a say in it. You, the soul, has a say in it. So the journey of the sovereign from, from bondage to sovereignty is not from goodness, badness to goodness, evil to holiness, but it's from compulsiveness and conditioned behavior and awkward, self-destructive, self-sabotaging behavior to strategic, intelligent, aware living, really. I wanted to say we're, we are getting too close to the end of the podcast, and but I couldn't leave without bringing up this one, uh, and it's in one of the chapters, and it's around Guru, recognizing a true teacher is the name of the chapter. And um, it uh, it's also... When you talk, oh, many people have a perception, that's what I was trying to say, of Advaita, non-dual teachings as cold, distant, 
not at all connected to uh, to the opening up of the deepest part of ourselves. Many and many teachers do teach that way, unbeknownst, I think, and uh, I think that's a, a can be a problem with non-dual teachers. Uh, that's so prevalent here in a, in the West, and particularly in America. Those are the books that sell, okay? Not books with bhakti. They don't sell because it's much easier for especially Westerners to go through mind. And in this case, though, the way that you in particular, for instance, talk about your guru, your Baba, the way that you're connected with just talking about the Ramayana and Ram. This is full of bhakti to me. That's what I'm getting. And uh, so here's your uh, shloka from the Kata Upanishad. The truth of self cannot come through one who has not realized that he or she is the self. Pure Advaita, right? Awakening comes not through logic and scholarship, but from close association with an awakened master. And I've said many, many, many times because, you know, well, you were lucky you got over to India and met this realized being, and, but we can't. We can't even think of it. Or is there even, are these beings still around? You know, all of those kind of questions. And I would say two things. One is, a true master who has gone beyond duality and lived in a human body, a, a siddha is what they call them in India, is not bound by a body. So that's one thing. This has nothing to do with a body. That's one thing. And, uh, and, and the other thing I tell people is, yes, everybody has that guide deepest part of themselves. It manifests in many different ways. It can manifest in, in the physical, as it happened with Ramdas and us. And uh, it can manifest in a billion other ways. But what happens, in my experience, is a certain kind of connection to intuition, to the truth, happens. And as you become more comfortable with that space, that which is uh, unnameable connects with one. And every one of us has that possibility. And I think, um, I think that's super important, especially for people in the West, to understand and relax a little bit. We are being taken care of. Am I right? You're absolutely right. Um, Lord Krishna has said in the Bhagavad Gita, just yearn for the truth and I shall supply you a teacher and a book and whatever you need. It shall happen in some way. And the true guru is not located in a geophysical plane in a specific body. The guru tattva, that guru, that wisdom of the cosmos shall come to you. It shall ha- it will be your miracle. And that guru may not have a guru profession, a guru website, a guru anything. When Ramdas found Neem Karoli Baba, 
no other Westerner knew about him. So it's like you will find your teacher and your teachings. And sometimes a current lifetime is a preparatory lifestyle lifetime. Sometimes it is a concluding lifetime. But preparatory always has to proceed concluding. So just the quality of your yearning is what is needed. And in my chapter, I've just given some red flags. Like don't just follow the guru with the maximum bodies following them. Don't just follow trends. Intuition plays a big role and there'll be an inner voice that guides you and tells you, I'm safe here. And do look for antecedents and precedents around the guru. Don't ignore some big question marks. Bring them up. And, and I had to write this chapter on the request of my publisher. And, and not that I had to. I had almost written it, but they wanted to include it because in the 21st century, the word guru is either a bad word or a joke word or a mocking word or a no word. Uh, you know, it doesn't have the gravitas with which I and you use it. That's why I wanted to return the gravitas and say, yeah. there might be 10 unfortunate people pretending to be gurus. But if you're sincere, one sincere teacher is going to be matched by you, for mm. you. This universe is so intelligent. Every atom is in its right place. And just like you found people who took you on the wrong path, when you are ready, the path sure mm -hmm. shall just emerge. It's, it's, and yeah. in today's world, you may listen to a podcast. You may come to a Facebook page. You may turn a page. A book may drop from a shelf in a library. And the guru tattva, that big guru abstract principle, is knocking you on the head. Mm. That's what I would say. Yep, yep. No, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Shunya, for being here. By the way, uh, we haven't even said, what does your name mean? I, I know what it means, but you please do say it because it's very powerful. My name means the divine void, the divine emptiness. And I just have a small story that it also means zero because zero, zero is, is what I was going to say. Yeah. And when I was growing up, children would tease me zero, zero. And I thought Baba has everything right but my name. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as I grew older, I realized that he wants me to touch that Shunya space, that that divine emptiness in which everything can be born and yeah. returned to. Mm. Very good name. As thank far you. As I now I know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so again, thank you for being here. We we Always have a pleasure. we would have to do oh I don't know another ten podcasts to cover so and I have notes here of all. Well, we'll do it again. I'd love and, to come back. Thank yeah? you. Oh, okay, we'll definitely do it again. And by the way, in the show notes, we'll get you links to uh, Shunya's uh, website and the book, Sovereign Self, and uh, maybe a link to what was the first uh, sacred Indian text that we came into contact with. Obviously, we did know of when we were kids of the uh, Bhagavad Gita, but not really of the Ramayana, and that became 
the central um, sacred text for us. And Maharaj used to say, just read Sundar Khan every Tuesday, which translates as the beautiful, which is the story of uh, Ram's wife being uh, kidnapped and him finding her again through the grace of uh, Hanuman. So, and we have to talk about there's so many different levels of that. We could go just one podcast just on that would be great. So we have to do, yes, yeah, yeah. So again, thank you, thank you. It was a delight. Took a little while because Acharya has been in India and just came back a couple of months ago, Uh, and we didn't talk about that. I wanted to hear all about that too. So yeah, let's get a list going of our podcast. Yeah, right. Really, really. Uh, thank you. And everybody, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and just uh, reap the rewards of many, many, many great teachers from uh, Ram Das to Jack Cornfield to Joseph Goldstein and on and on. And, and we, have even have, we have Alan Watts now on our, on our network, uh, who we love, who Ram Das was close to. So we shall see you next week. Namaste. Namaste.